0: series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: Well, thank you for being here tonight. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. And Now we're going to talk, we've been talking about the importance of relationships, right relationships. And this is part three. We're working through 2 Corinthians and just looking at the themes that Paul brings up is what we're doing. And tonight we're going to talk about the repentance in right relationships. 2 Corinthians 6, uh, uh, verse 7. (laughs) Hang on. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 11 is what we're going to be talking about. Now, we spent some time looking at this. We looked at the recipe for right relationships, what's involved. You know, a recipe is anything that you have that makes things turn out right. So we looked at the recipe. We looked at the requirements of right relationships. And as I said, tonight we're going to talk about the repentance. This is not a fun message. This is the repentance that is necessary for right Relationships. Before a relationship can be healed and mended among God's people, the one who has sinned and caused the break must come to the place of repentance. There's not going to be the oneness that they're looking for until one makes it right, the one that caused the problem. Paul's relationship with the believers at Corinth had been a very shaky one, but it was not because of his doing that made the relationship difficult. The, the Corinthian believers had bought into the false doctrine of those in Corinth. Now, that had caused them to think wrongly and therefore to live wrongly. And when you've got somebody that's living like Paul was seeking to live, letting Jesus be Jesus in him, and you have somebody else who thinks on an entirely different paradigm, you cannot walk together. There cannot be that agreement, that relationship that God so wants. Now, when this happens and the relationship is severed in whatever way, Within the body of Christ, somebody, somebody has to drop anchor. And most of the time, and I would say 99.9% of the time, it's going to have to be the one who's the most spiritual that makes the move to see that that relationship might be healed. Now, when I say drop anchor, I don't mean drop it on their head. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you this. I got this, <laughs> this email this week, and I've been laughing about it ever since I got it. Keep sending those kind to me. I like these kinds. A couple had been debating the purchase of a new automobile for weeks. He wanted a new truck. I like him. She wanted a fast little sports car. He would probably have settled for an old truck. The guys, you guys are like that. They don't care. But but everything she seemed to like was way out of their price range. Look, she said, I want something that goes from zero to two hundred. In four seconds or less. And my birthday is coming up and you really could surprise me. So for her birthday, he brought her a brand new bathroom scale. (laughs) 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 Services will be at Downing Funeral Home on Monday the 12th. due to the condition of the body this will be a closed casket service <laughs> please send your donations to the think before you say things to your wife foundation dallas texas <laughs> that's not what i'm talking about <laughs> Oh, i love that paul knew that in order for their relationship to be right they had to come to be open and honest with one another you see he makes the first move. He's a much more spiritual one in this whole crowd. He makes the first move by writing them a letter, confronting them with the tough areas in which they needed to see. And then by bearing his heart in chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, and he opened the door further for them to make things right. He knows that their relationship will never be right until the Corinthians were willing to rid themselves of the poisonous influences in their life and to their thinking. He knows it's going to be painful for them. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 7, therefore having these promises, and he talks about those promises we studied back in chapter 6, how God would welcome them if they would just get rid of those poisonous influences. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, when we cleanse ourselves from all the ungodly influences in our life, that's what causes us to think wrong. That's what causes us to live wrong. Then we're free to let Jesus be Jesus in us. And that's when relationships can be what they're supposed to be. But it's very important at this time that I address something, and it won't take me but a second to do it, but there's been some confusion in some of your minds. I've tried to clear it up, but yet it's still there, and I better clear it up. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you have married an unbeliever. And when you're hearing, don't make an un, a, a, a binding relationship with an unbeliever. When you're hearing of not being unequally yoked, uh, this has caused some problems because you realize that what you did was wrong, but yet you're in the situation. Now, what do you do now when you're supposed to rid yourself of poisonous influences in your life? Well, I've tried to say to you, and perhaps you weren't here when I said it, but You can't unscramble eggs. There are some relationships we make that that need to be broken and we need to get away from, but marriage is not one of them. Once you are in that relationship, you are in that relationship. And where you could take the application of what Paul is saying here is that if you'll cleanse your life of anything that would corrupt your thinking towards your unbelieving husband or wife, the one to whom you're married right now, then Christ in you will begin to love that individual through you. There is a lot of hope for you. But I wanted you to make sure that in our text, Paul's not addressing marriage. He would have been much more specific had he been doing that. He did leave it open and we mentioned that, but that's not his point. Paul is not addressing that. He's, he's specifically addressing the problem of the Corinthians embracing, entering into covenant relationships with the false doctrine of the false teachers there in Corinth. And this is what had caused the broken relationship with Paul. And Paul has told us that to have right relationships, we're going to have to start respecting who God is when we make our choices. And when it comes to the hurtful things that believers have done to us, we must be willing to lay it down. If we want that right relationship with somebody who is thinking wrongly, therefore they're living wrongly, we've got to be willing, the more spiritual ones have got to be willing to lay that down and and give, give them the benefit of the doubt and let God have an opportunity to work in their lives. You can only go so far in making a relationship work out right. And what Paul's trying to show you is he was willing to trust God that lived in the lives of those believers. We must be willing to do that. And what we're going to see today is how it paid off in Paul's life. That was exactly what happened to the church of Corinth. Their response ended up being exactly what Paul had prayed for and desired. Repentance, as we'll see today in our message, is not, is not only a change of mind, it's a change of heart, and it also leads to a change of action. And that's what we're going to see today. This is what happened again, like I said, to the church of Corinth in their relationship with Paul. God broke through. And this is the beautiful thing. So often, it's almost like somebody says, let's pray. Well, has it come to that? You know, And they don't understand. That's, we have to learn to trust God to do what we know we cannot do. We can only go so far. God can take it to the next step. You see, it pays to trust Christ, to do his work in his people, instead of fighting them based on wrong information in the first place. So the three things that I want us to see about repentance that is it's absolutely necessary when you're gonna have right relationships. When when relationships have been broken and, and you need to come back together, there's gonna to have to be repentance. And we need to understand this. First of all, we see a picture of what we're talking about, a picture of repentance. Now, the information that Titus brought back to Paul was overwhelming to his spirit. Remember, Titus had taken that third letter to the people there in Corinth, and Paul couldn't wait to hear from him. How did they respond? He had, he had, Paul had given them the benefit of the doubt, Oh, and Christ had done a great work in their hearts. This is what we're, we're going to get into, the scene that we're going to see here. In verse 6, But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Remember back in chapter 2 in verse 13, Paul went down to Troas. And when he got to Troas, God opened the door of ministry for him. But when when he saw that, that Titus wasn't there, They were supposed to rendezvous in Troas and Paul was willing to walk away from those doors of ministry knowing that they'd still be open when he came back to look for his brother. And so he went over to Macedonia to find him. And it says in chapter 2 verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit. When he got to Troas, he was so anxious to see how the Corinthians, had they repented, had they responded. He says, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on. To Macedonia. And I, I still am overwhelmed and flabbergasted of the fact that, that we think that we have to keep the doors of ministry open. Paul knew that if God opened it, it would still be there. Paul left it in search of a brother because he, he missed him. He was he needed information from him. It was just a very tender time. Now that his condition in chapter seven, verse six, when he gets to Macedonia, his condition is described very clearly. It says, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, the word depressed there is the word topinos. Most of the time, it's translated humility. But the word in its technical sense is how it's used here. It means to somebody that's low down. I mean, I'm not talking about low down in their way they live, but they're, they're flat out. They're flat. The word means flat. It, 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 in this particular context, uh, concerning the Apostle Paul and his, his troubling in his spirit, it meant he was mentally and emotionally flat when it came to the wondering whether or not the Corinthians had done what God had wanted them to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I love God's Word, and I love the gut honesty of God's Word. Aren't you glad that the Apostle Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, would admit to his own mental and emotional struggle that he had before Titus finally showed up. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been there? Maybe it was a concern over someone that you have prayed for. You couldn't go any further. And you wanted to know whether or not they had repented. You love them. You're concerned about them. And you've been in those times of just being emotionally flat, mentally flat. Anybody in here besides me? (laughs) That's incredible to me how encouraging this really is. Uh, I wonder how many of you are there tonight. I wonder how many of you are there tonight. Paul wants, to, wants us to know that God is always faithful to comfort the depressed. Uh, the word comfort, parakaleo, to come alongside for the, for the purpose of encouraging us when we're wrung out emotionally, when we're wrung out mentally. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. You see, when, when Paul saw Titus and heard the response of the Corinthians, his spirits lifted. It says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I even rejoiced more. God always shows up just at the right time, doesn't he? To comfort those that are concerned and are overwhelmed by whatever is going on in their life. He always shows up to comfort his people. And he does this in many ways. He did it in Paul's way by sending Titus to him. But God has his own ways of comforting us in times when we are maybe anxious in our spirit or emotionally and mentally flat concerning whatever's going on in our life. Been wondering whether or not to share this or not, and I'm just going to go ahead and do it. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I like to be honest. You know, this deficit in the budget that we're going through right now has gotten to me. Not the fact that we don't have the money. Now, I have to understand very clearly what I'm saying. God can blink an eye and take care of it. And I believe that, and I walk by faith, and I trust him to do that. But here's, what, here's what's made me a little anxious. I've been in the ministry 43 years, and I've been around the block. And I've watched how people respond to something like that. I watch how the people who walk by faith, and like we sung a while ago, that we're surrounded by His grace and His mercy, and we live in that He's the air and all that we breathe, and we know that He leads us through times and seasons of our life, and He leads His own people. If you, we studied the book of Joshua together and saw how God led His people, I mean, from one battle to another to a circle, I mean, it was incredible. And every time they didn't stop and say, well, it's your fault. Well, it's your fault. No, they said, what is is the bigger picture? What is God trying to do in our midst? And we know that everything that God does is redemptive. Everything God does is for a life change within us. And I think that's the thing that's gotten to me or had gotten to me even last week. Even when we prayed, I, I couldn't get out from under it. I, I felt emotionally flat because I want so badly for people to understand God is good all the time. All the time God is good. And he simply leads us to these places so that we can learn to trust him in a deeper way. That's all it is. We went hunting this past week. Now be rest assured to deer are fine. Uh, we saw 62 mule deer and five bucks, but they weren't shooters. But we had a great time. Stuart Coleman and Terry were with me and two other guys in our church and P.T. Anderson and Jason that plays sometime with a saxophone up here. We were 25, 30 miles from anywhere this past week. Left on Sunday afternoon after the book signing and got back on Wednesday. Time for a seed and all Wednesday night. Wednesday morning, we were about ready to, to break camp. and I, I didn't tell anybody I was going through this. I didn't say a thing about it. As far as anybody else knows, I'm fine. It's just something I'm struggling with on the inside. I I, I so much want to be in a church before God comes again that actually trusts God when these things come. And instead of standing back and throwing stones and all this other garbage that goes with it, it's not just here. It's everywhere, folks. And I'm sitting there at the chair talking to Stuart. I knew I wouldn't get through this. What is a dove symbol of in scripture? What's a dove symbol of? God's peace. They have a bird that looks identical to a dove, but looks like somebody's taken an air pump and blown it up. (laughs) It's about four times as big as a dove you've ever seen. It's called a mountain pigeon. You only find them in the high altitudes in in the mountains. I'm sitting there talking to Stuart and Stuart has a funny look on his face. And he said, look at this. And here comes this dove. Whew, whew, whew. That chair was right next to me, and he landed right there on that handle of that chair. And you know, that dove had the funniest thing. And he just kept looking at me. <laughs> I noticed his eyes were red. <laughs> He'd probably been up all night. Then he jumped over on a rock on the fire. Stuart and I were just totally taken back like, whoa. Whoa. Well, P.T. Anderson was with us, and P.T. grabbed his camera and came running over. He was going to take a picture. Well, well, in the meantime, Stuart thought he wanted something to eat, so he threw a piece of bacon over there, and the the dove flew back to the tree. And boy, we're sitting there thinking, man, that is unusual. And about that time, that dove left that tree and came down and sat almost on my hand, maybe an inch away from my finger there, and just stood there and looked at me. Then he jumped over on my leg to where he could look straight on to me. And just sat there and sat there and stood there for, forever, seemed like. we got pictures of that, by the way. And then all of a sudden, he just flew away. Now, you know, a lot of people live their life and they say, boy, that was really interesting, man. And, you, and they think God couldn't be in something like that. Boy, that's not the way I think. I'll tell you what, I have rested in that since that happened Wednesday morning. You know what God, I think, was saying in my heart, Wayne, calm down, son. Calm down. You can't make people be anything. Just keep doing what I tell you to do. It's okay. I'm going to bring you through this time. Trust me. And I'll tell you what, a cloud lifted off of me about Wednesday morning. And it hadn't bothered me since. And I thought about this when I thought about Paul. It wasn't Titus running in there. It wasn't, it was a dove. And it was a weird looking one to start with. But you know, God has his own way of comforting his people. When they're emotionally and mentally flat, he has a way of speaking to you in such a significant personal way that he's going to lift you in the midst of whatever it is you're going through. Paul knew all about the God of comfort. Chapter 1, we, we spent several messages on the God of comfort. He started the whole epistle off that way. But Paul's comfort wasn't in just seeing Titus come to him, but it was in hearing what Titus had to say. That's really what comforted Paul. Yes, he was comforted in seeing Titus, but, but Titus had been so blessed so comforted. When he got over to Corinth, and he found out that God really was working in these people's lives. And even though they couldn't see it and they had no, didn't have a whole lot to go on, the whole church responded in a very powerful, right way. It says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Look at verse 7. And not only by his coming, that was part of it, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. You see, there was something that had happened to the Corinthian believers that was so deep and so significant, and it so ministered to Titus that when he saw Paul, it just spilled all over Paul, and then Paul was caught up in that comfort, and Paul tells us what it was that happened there. He finishes verse 7 and says, as he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now, that's a God thing, folks. That is a God thing. He couldn't go any further than he had gone. Sent the letter. Oh, a tough letter. He had bared his heart to them. He couldn't do one single thing. But it was what happened here that God did. As he reported to us your longing. The word longing is the word epipothesis. It comes from the word epipatheo. It means to desire something, to long for someone, to regard with longing. To see someone. Now, of course, the little word epi is in the front of it. I've told you that many times. When you see that little preposition in front of it, it means it intensifies the word, it pushes it to its ultimate. I mean, they were longing to see Paul. What a change! What a change! You're talking about a repentant heart. These were the people who were accusing him and buying into that, that he wasn't even an apostle. Now they're longing for him. The word mourning is a beautiful word that expresses one's heartfelt love and concern for someone. It's the word ovuras or lumos, it means to wail. To lament over someone. It's only used two times in the whole New Testament. And to show you the depths of this word, it's used in Matthew in the fulfilling of Jeremiah's prophecy just after Herod had slain all of the children to and under. And it says in Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. That's the word. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Oh, it's a voice of lament. It's a voice of lament over somebody who has either been hurt or, or over somebody, in this case, that you have hurt again. Wow. What a change had come into Corinthians' life. They hadn't been that way before. And then he adds, and your zeal for me, the word zeal, the word zelos and when, and when it's used in a good sense as it is here, it means to your zeal to be like somebody, to emulate them man, the Corinthians had come full circle. Not only did they long to see Paul, not only were they deeply sorrowful for hurting Paul, they wished to emulate him in their life. Now, this is evidence of true repentance with someone who has caused a lot of pain in your life and has now been touched by God. Wasn't it awesome? When we just go before the Lord and say, Oh God, I've done everything I know to do. I'm just going to turn it over to you. And I'm going to, I'm going to trust you to work in this individual's life. And, and we, we just continue to try to rest in that. And then one day somebody brings us the news of the change, the radical change that God has wrought in somebody's life. And oh, how, how it blesses our heart, how it comforts us, encourages us in the walk. Well, secondly we see the pain of true repentance. Now, this picture of true repentance doesn't come without pain. And this is the sad thing that a lot of times even preachers will do, they try to make a a repentance that's easy, a repentance that doesn't hurt. There's no such thing. For a person to come to repentance, he must be confronted with the problem of whatever he's done that's caused the break in this relationship, whether it be the relationship with God, certainly that's true, or the relationship with either, or both. Someone has to pay a great price in order for the truth to come out. He says in verse 8 and 9, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice. Now, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Now, Paul had written them a very stern third letter that we don't have that Titus had taken. He knew it would bring much pain to them because they stood guilty of some pretty tough things. You know, don't you hate to be the one to have to say those things to somebody? Don't you hate to be the one to to mess up somebody's little party by saying, listen, you need to deal with sin in your life and begin to to name that out? It's hard. It's hard. It was hard with our children growing up when when I had to correct them. It was hard. It's hard for any of us. There's pain involved. Well, we know that there was someone who was the source of all the suspicion and criticism towards the Apostle Paul. And I don't know if this was the whole problem, but it was certainly part of it. Such harsh criticism that they gave that they even challenged Paul being an apostle. And Paul defends himself from this criticism. He does it back in chapter 2. We've already studied that. And well, again, in the last four chapters of, of 2 Corinthians, he spends the whole four chapters defending his apostleship. But Paul points to the fact that there was a ringleader. Isn't that interesting? There's always, it only takes one. One person with a suspicious, uh, poisoned mind can poison the whole bunch. It says in verse 6 of chapter 2, sufficient for such a one is, is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority for such a one. That's very individual. And they, of course, he's even alluding back then, they have dealt with this man. Some also say that Paul had in mind not only this one, but the, perhaps the man in chapter five of First Corinthians that was sleeping with his father's wife and the church wouldn't, wouldn't deal with it. Maybe he was also involved. I don't know. That could be true. There could be more people involved in that. The bottom line is they weren't doing what God wanted them to do. As a result of being quiet, they bought into every bit of it. Well, the fact is they were just content to overlook errant sin. And as a result of that, they, they took their information from poisonous people in the body of Christ. And as a result, turned their whole hatred towards Paul. So when Paul wrote to them this stern letter taken to them by Titus, he knew it would hurt them. He knew there was going to be some pain involved in this when they were confronted with the truth. He regretted hurting them, but he didn't regret what the hurt led to. He didn't want them to be hurt, yet he wanted to see them healed in the process. He says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though, though I do regret it, I did regret it. For I, I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while... He didn't want them to be hurt. He loved them, but he knew they needed to be hurt in order to be healed. I now rejoice. Now, not that you were made sorrowful. That's not what I rejoice in. I, I rejoice because you were made sorrowful. Now, this is the key here. You were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You see, again, Paul doesn't rejoice in the sorrow. He rejoices in the result of what that sorrow brought in their life. It's like a surgeon. Years ago, I got a package in the mail and <laughs> I was in a hurry, and I had a skinning knife, a deer skinning knife, in my desk drawer. That's not a good place to put that. And when I went to open it, that's the only thing I could find. And in a hurry, I went to open the package, and my knife slipped and cut my thumb so bad it cut the tendon in it. And I didn't know it cut the tendon. A doctor in my church said, what's wrong with your thumb? He could tell something was wrong, and I said, I don't know. I can't move it back this way. He said, oh, my gosh, Wayne, you've cut the tendon. I, <laughs> Hello? I didn't go to medical school, so he took me to a surgeon that he worked with. He was a hand surgeon himself, and he took me to a guy, and they did surgery on it. And the guy told me, he said, you know what, Wade, I'm going to put a lot of Novocaine in this stuff, and I'm going to numb it, but it's going to hurt you bad. <laughs> but it will heal. But we're going to have to hurt you in order to heal you. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. I remember he told me when I, they put a big wrapping on it, looked like a baked potato. And they said, you're going to have to hold it over your head for three days. The surgery was on Thursday. So I had to preach that Sunday with my, th- with my thumb over my head, and it was just throbbing. You know. But it healed. I can show you the scars. It's amazing. The pain had to come with the healing. That's what he's dealing with here. The word repentance in verse 9 is a very special word and very difficult to fully grasp. I hope I have. I'm going to shoot at it. It's the word metanoia. It comes from the word metanoeo. It's made up of two words. Meta denotes a change of condition. And noel refers to the way one thinks, the, the, the exercise of the mind and when it comprehends something and does something about it. So when one repents, God has changed the way he thinks about something. And as a result, the individual changes what he does about that. There's a, there's a change in behavior. If there's no change in living, then nobody's repented. Repentance demands a change in one's behavior. Repentance is not valid, unless there's an evidence of it in our lives. It says in Matthew chapter three, verse eight, "Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's got to be some kind of fruit. That comes forth when a person repents. Saying, I'm sorry is the easiest thing in the world for many Christians that don't understand repentance. Oh, I'm so sorry. And they'll cry and even make you think they mean it. But if there's no change, all that was was just pitiful emotion. It was not repentance. God used a tough letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians. It got their attention. You know, sometimes he, he even told them, I'm writing this letter because I don't want to cause you harm. Man, evidently, if he'd have gone there, he'd have skinned, skinned them a lot. God caused a complete change of attitude and a complete way of thinking towards Paul to occur within the Corinthian believers. And, and this built a relationship they had not really experienced for a long time. And, and this, was the, this was why he was so excited when Titus came. Repentance is is not solely the work of man. We have to be real careful with this word and how we balance it. Pray for me as I try to. It involves the work of God and the work of man. It's the work of God in man, you see. The Holy Spirit has to reveal to man that this is not just something he did that was wrong. This is sin that's transgressed to a holy God. And then the Holy Spirit living in man, when he yields to that and admits that and confesses that, gives him the ability there. It's, a, it's, it's God's grace doing this to, to be able to do something about it, to change. It's God's grace. It's not up all up to man. And we've got to understand the involvement God has in what I call the grace of repentance. In Acts 5, 31, it says, He is the one, speaking of Christ, whom God exalted to his right hand as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel, the forgiveness of sins. It has to start with God. In Acts 11, 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And so, There's there's a twofold thing going on here. It's God revealing the sin, the transgression against his will. We've offended a holy God, but it's also God enabling us to be able to do what's needed to change as as a result of that. But the, the, the thing that Paul's pointing to is the pain that's involved in it. It's not only felt by the one who has to say the hard things. That's bad enough. I remember when I was little and I'd sit on the steps and my mama would be spanking me and she'd be crying. I'd say, why are you crying? And she said, it just breaks my heart to do this. And I, of course, I got spanked harder when I said, well, why don't you just quit? <laughs> but I mean, there's pain in this. There's pain. Whoever it is, has pain. But it's also felt deeply by the ones to whom God reveals the depth of what that sin has caused. And so he says in verse 9 of... 2 Corinthians 7, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. Man, it kills me to know that you went through the pain, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. The word for sorrow is a word lupeo or lipeo. It means to be deeply grieved and overwhelmed by sadness. Paul doesn't rejoice in that sadness and grief that they had to go through. When, you know, it's amazing when you see your sin. When God reveals it. You know, I can stand up here and tell somebody something and I can can convince him and he can even cry. But buddy, when God's Holy Spirit shows you the depth and the sickness of that sin, I mean, it grieves you to the point in bitter tears you begin to weep. When, When Peter realized what he had done in denying the Lord Jesus, it says he went out and wept bitterly. This is what repentance does. This is something that doesn't come from man. This is something that God does in a man's life. The way to repentance, the way to repentance is the way of grief and sorrow. But the end, when you get there, is worth everything. It's worth everything. There's no way you can have a painless, griefless repentance. Don't ever hear that message preached and believe it. A broken and a contrite heart is not a pleasant sensation. So Paul gives us a picture of the result of what happens when people have repented. But then you quickly go to the pain that's involved in repentance. When God shows you what sin is there. When you realize it's not just against Paul or whoever. It's against God. And then he gives you the grace then to work, to come out of it, to change. The enabling power. That's what the message of grace is all about. Well, thirdly, we see the pattern of true repentance. We, we want to see how, what steps they went through. How, when God revealed it to them, what, what happened? It says in verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness, this, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, He says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Man, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now, this is interesting. Paul contrasts two kinds of sorrow there in verse 10 and 11. The sorrow of the world that produces death and the sorrow that is according to the will of God. Now, I want to make sure you see the two differences here. I'm telling you, there are some people that can make a great actor when it comes to repentance. They don't even know what it is, but they know that if they cry enough and if they say, I'm sorry enough, they think they can get away with it, turn right around, go back and do it again. That is not repentance. That's the sorrow of the world that produces death. But the godly sorrow, sorrow that is according to the will of God, that which he intends to do in a person's life, it says it produces life. It's entirely different. It leads to salvation. Now let's look at that. Sorrow of the world and a sorrow that is according to the will of God. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, the, the sorrow of, the, the, he says, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. Now, you have to understand, it doesn't produce salvation. That's God's business. Just because a person's repented doesn't mean he's, he's yet delivered. God has to do that part of it. Salvation, he says, it leads to salvation. It, 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 it directs one toward it, but God has to do the salvation, the saving. Salvation is restoration to the fullness of life. Now, whether it be a lost person being restored from the, from the penalty of the sin of Adam into the fullness of Christ's life, or whether it be a believer like it is in our text being restored from a pitiful sin in their life of, of a broken relationship with a brother back into the fullness of what God offered. But it leads to that. That's God's work. Godly sorrow produces a radical change of both heart and of life. And one is delivered from wrong living back into the fullness of life by God himself. Point is, only God can bring that salvation about. The sorrow inflicted by God himself produces a repentance that leads to salvation. You say, Wayne, why are you making a big point out of that? Well, I'll show you. The Corinthians genuine godly sorrow produced a repentance that God ended up delivering them from the bondage they were in. It resulted in an earnestness to make things right with Paul, an eagerness to vindicate themselves of their wrong choices, a willingness to take effective action against Paul's opponent, an emotional longing and concern for Paul. This is what all came as a result of their being delivered in that act of repentance. But in contrast to that, this is why I bring that out. The sorrow of the world doesn't lead to death. It produces it. Whereas repentance doesn't produce salvation, it leads to it. But the sorrow of the world produces that death. It's an un- the unproductive grief of a person that's not of God. When God's left out of the picture... When somebody is just sorry for their circumstances and sorry for their condition and they can weep and weep and weep, it's not going to get them anywhere because it's only going to produce death in their life because God is not in the picture. When God does it, there's a radical change in the way the person thinks, the way the person feels, and in the way the person now lives. That's how you know a person's repented of their sin. Only God can do that. But a person who's of the world, I've been around people that will cry because they're mad. Have you ever known somebody like that? You're talking to them and you think they're repenting and they start crying. <laughs> they're not repenting. They're just so mad they can't think of anything else to do but cry. Sorrow of the world never changes anybody. As a matter of fact, you make a, a, a person, a, a child of wrath, miserable, you just made him worse because he's just going to rebel against it. The bitterness sets in even deeper. But when God's in the picture, he changes from the inside out. Well, Paul doesn't say a whole lot more about it, does he? He doesn't doesn't elaborate on the sorrow of the world. So I'm not going to go any further with that. What Paul's point is, he's focused on the godly sorrow that had changed the lives of the Corinthian believers. He says in verse 11, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Man, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now Paul says that their repentance vindicated them. When a person has truly come full circle the change in their life tells everybody that God's been at work in their heart. In verse, verse 11 he's outlining the pattern of how this took place in their life. First of all, he says, they were indignant towards their sin, which means they saw their sin as it was and moved quickly to deal with it. They were indignant. They, they, were over, they, they, were, they, they couldn't stand that sin in their life. They did this with fear, out of an alarm for the seriousness of what they had done. I tell you, how do you feel like when you've been convicted and when you repent of something in your life? To me, it's like God has kicked me in the a horse has kicked me in the chest, and I get no nothing helps me at all until I do what he tells me to do. And that's what he's talking about right here. They had a longing to make things right with Paul. They didn't say, Paul, you better make things right with us, which is most of the time what people do. They said, no, we've got to make it right with Paul. They were filled with zeal, a burning desire to get this behind them and to move on in the Christian relationship they could have with Paul. They sought to avenge the evil that they had done by doing what was right. That's a pattern. That's a pattern. When they saw it, they moved quickly. They were indignant at their sin. They hated it, and they wanted it out. And with haste, they wanted to make that relationship right. They wanted to put it behind them and move on. The word revenge is the word ekklesis. It means to execute justice. They wanted justice to be done, and they knew for justice to be done, they had to come clean. They had to deal with their sin in their life. And this proved them to be innocent. Now be careful about what you think there. They, what I think he's saying here is that they sinned not so much by doing what was wrong, but by not doing what was right. And they realized it. And they were innocent of the ones coming up with all of it. They'd sucked into it. But because of the repentance, they proved themselves to be true believers of God. And now the relationship could be restored with Paul. So the picture of true repentance, that's a beautiful picture there of how they completely changed towards Paul. The the pain of true repentance, there's a lot of pain in it and nothing nice about it. Nothing without grief in it and the pattern of true repentance as we've just seen. Let me ask you a question. How's your relationships tonight? How's your relationship? You know, we're coming into the holiday season. (laughs) Isn't it fun when family come? Oh, Brother Wayne, I can't wait till all my family get in my house. Mm-hmm, right. When you, if you'll you lie about that, you'll lie about anything. Relationships. I, I, this is where we live, folks. This is where we live. I've said many times if it wasn't for people, I could live the Christian life. <laughs> but really, I've had to change that. If it wasn't for people, I wouldn't even know how to live the Christian life. It's people that drive me to the place of dependence upon God to do something in me that I've already discovered I can't do. We had, when I was at my first pastorate in Chattanooga, and I'll hurry and watch my clock here. When I was at my first pastorate, there's a school for mean people somewhere, and they train them, send them wherever I go. We had a, we were about to bring up a staff member, and I had this one little whippersnapper, smart aleck deacon, that took me on. And I'm twice as big as he is. and You know, sometimes I'll think about that. I'm 6'7", weigh 270 pounds. I believe I could go behind the building and solve a whole lot of this mess. Whoever walks out, <laughs> runs the place. Well, God's not impressed with that. And we were about to bring this guy on, and I mean, this guy stirred up a hornet's nest. He would, he would get with people and say, Hi, how are you? Good to see you today. Would I like to go out to eat? And they'd go out to eat and have me for lunch. I mean, I begin to understand that. I began to find out who was going out with him. And I remember one Monday, I was so discouraged. You're talking about being flat out, mentally and emotionally. I wrote my letter of resignation. I could see God up in heaven saying, Boy, that's a real good one. Come here, Simon Peter. I got one just like you. Well, look at this. Guy. He'd write. I, 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 in that letter, I burned everybody in the church. <laughs> By the way, I've got a letter that you'd like to rent sometime. It's good stuff. Matter of fact, I ought to put it on the web and sell this thing because it was biblical. I burned everybody with Scripture. I'm going to shake the dust off my feet, and I'm going to go somewhere, people do hear the word of God. And God's going. Well, I was down to church that day and just so sick about the people that I had really loved and trusted. It had bought into this wrong information, and the phone rang. And it was this guy. <laughs> he said, preacher. And I said, what? This is not good, folks. This is not good. If you want right relationship, this is not the way to handle it. He said, I want to talk to you. I said, come on down, son. Come on down. I'm by myself. I've already resigned. This is going to be enjoyable. Came down to the church, knocked on the outside door. I opened the door. I didn't shake his hand. Are you kidding me? Now, don't you look at me. You say, Wayne, I'm going to listen to you if you did stuff like that. If I knew what went on out there, I wouldn't bother speaking it to you either. I shut the door and slammed it dead bolted it. Turned the lights out. Went upstairs. He fell over everything in there. I think, I don't care if he breaks his neck. We got upstairs in my office, and he said, it didn't bother him, but it didn't even scare him. I slammed the door and locked it. He just cut into me, tore me up for 45 minutes. When he finished, I had my Bible not as big as this one. And I took it, and I hit him in the chest. Boom, it fell on his lap. And I said, now, you take that Bible and back up one single thing you said to me today. I don't care if you make it up. Put, put a bunch of things together if you can come up with it. I want to hear how you have heard from God by what you've said to me today. Man, he looked at me and began to weep, and I'm thinking, oh, this is great. This is great. Cried, and he said, Wayne, I don't even know what's in that book. I'm here because my daddy sent me down here. Well, God was convicting me, man. I, I had acted like a jerk. And I said, you need to forgive me. Man, I have completely lost it. This is not what God would have. And, boy, we both began to weep together, and we got down on our knees, and we began to pray. And you know what God said? He said, what just happened between the two of you it needs to happen in this church. And the next night, they all came in, and I said, hey, folks, we're not going to have. You know, it's wonderful. This is back. We didn't have elders. That's back in the old business meeting days. Anybody remember those days at all? You ever been to one? Aren't they fun? Nobody comes to church, but they'll come to a business meeting, beach watching wrestling on television. They had packed the place out. And I said, folks, we're not going to have a business meeting tonight. We're going to have a prayer meeting because the Holy Spirit says we are one together, and we're not walking in oneness right now. We're not producing it in the bonds of peace, as Ephesians says. We're going to pray till the oneness comes back into this church. Boy, you can see. I said, all you men come down here. About two of them walked down. I saw the wives go, get down there, get down. I said, oh, you call yourself a man, get down here. <laughs> we filled the whole place. Long story short, that prayer meeting lasted two hours and 45 minutes. That's the closest thing to real revival I've ever experienced since I've been in the pastorate. You know Why? because repentance is absolutely necessary if you're ever gonna walk in the fullness of what God says is yours in Christ Jesus. It's painful, but it's beautiful on the other side. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.